Well, howdy. Good to see you this morning. Welcome to Clear Creek. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers. If this is your first time, we just want to welcome you to the family. I'm glad that you're here today. Stick around afterwards. Let us get to know you a little better. Before we go any further, can we just thank Paul and the team for leading us in worship this morning? Man. I'm so glad God gives us different gifts and that we're in a church where people use their gifts. So again, thank you all. Appreciate it so much. We're diving into the fifth and final part of this series, What Happens When You Die? And we're going to answer some of, I only say some because you gave us a lot of questions today. But before we dive into the questions, I have one important thing I want to share with you. Almost 12 years ago, A young man named Mitchell Halstead came to Clear Creek to be one of our youth ministers. He has served in a variety of roles over the past 12 years in youth ministry, most recently as the middle school youth minister. Today is his last day as a youth minister here. Now, that makes me sad, but what makes me happy is he, his sweet wife Kayla, and their son Hunter plan to be a part of the Clear Creek family uh, going forward. So, since this is his last day, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to ask you, out at the desk, there are some blessing cards. Whether you've had interaction with Mitchell or Kayla or not, I don't care. Grab one, bless them, thank them, write a scripture, a prayer, or something. And number two, can you just show a little love to Mitch and Kayla this morning for what they've done for the past 12 years? They may be hiding right now, so we love you, Mitchell and Kayla and Hunter. Now, we got a lot to cover this morning. I will not be able to cover all of your questions today, so on Tuesday, you may want to put a little reminder, but on Tuesday at 11 a.m., we will go live, we'll do a Facebook Live, Uh, we'll, we'll get some information out to you, but it'll be on our church Facebook, it'll also be on my personal one, so hopefully you'll find it is the point, and we'll try to answer the remaining questions that we cannot get to Today Now, I have 12 questions I'm going to attempt to go through. And if it's anything like the first service, we ain't getting through them all, okay? But we'll add those in on Tuesday as well. Now, we're going to hit some pretty... Honestly, you guys have some big questions. So before we get into some of the real heady, deep stuff, I figure we need to start off with something a little lighter. Are you guys up for a joke? Can we start with a joke? We're going to do it anyway. Just play along, okay? Can we do a joke? Yeah, okay, great. Now listen, I think this is a hilarious joke. A few years ago, I first shared it with my wife a few years ago. She didn't think it was that funny, so I just want to know what you guys think, okay? All right, so here's the joke. First question, it goes like this, all right? What do you want someone to say at your funeral? Answer? Hey, look, he's moving. (laughs) It's funny. All right, all right. Let's get into it. First question, and this is the probably most requested question. It's a question about cremation. And the question is this, is it okay to cremate a body? All right, quick answer, yes. There's nothing in scripture that I can see that attempts to give guidelines regarding acceptable burial practices. You're not going to find right after the book of Revelation a list of how to birth and bury people. Just not there. No matter which burial practice one follows, though, the results, and this is the key thing, the results are always the same. Let me give you a passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 20 says, all, everyone say all, all All go to the same place. All come from dust 
And, notice this, to dust all return. So you start out dusty and you go back dusty. The only thing that's at question is how long does it take you to get that way? Are are, are you tracking with me? So let's talk. Ancient Egyptians, they buried their people. They sort of mummified them in some cases, but they buried them. They embalmed them uh, to preserve them for a period of time and prepare them for the afterlife. The first century Jewish people had a more quick plan. They would bury you the same day uh, because they didn't want you stinking up the place. So what they would do is they'd wrap you up, 60-foot long piece of linen. It was about a foot wide. They'd wrap you, wrap you, wrap you, wrap you, put uh, spices and all in there as you went to help the smell of decay not be so strong, and they'd put you in a cave or in an, a stone ossuary. It's a little box is what it is. That's how they did it. Now, the way we do it is we will embalm, and then that's to prepare and preserve the body long enough for the family to mourn and out-of-town guests to come and be with the family. It's uh, just a time to be able to have closure. Now, practices when it comes to burials are changing pretty radically primarily because of the extreme costs of burying people. Have any of you noticed uh, you basically have to sell a child to be buried? Any of you notice the prices? And so because of this, people are beginning to look at alternatives, including cremation. But what I want you to understand is the only difference between laying someone, embalming them, whatever it may be, and cremation is how quickly they go from dust to dust. Left long enough, we will all become dust, correct? Now, one of the concerns people have with this question is, well, yeah, but, but at the resurrection, how's God going to raise my body if I don't got no body? Well, let me ask you this. The people who uh, were martyred for their faith, faith, the people who were killed for their faith, they were burned at the stake. Some were eaten and torn apart by wild animals. Or what about just the Christians who died over a thousand years ago whose bodies have naturally decomposed? They've gone to dust. Well, what about them based on that logic? Here's what you need to know. A God that is big enough to create you from dust is big enough to recreate you from the dust. He will find you. You don't need to worry. Okay? Make sense? Give me a little nod. Otherwise, this is going to be a real long morning. Okay. Let's go. Question number two. Will I remain conscious after death or go into a soul sleep? Okay? We talked about this a little bit last week. The idea is some believe that when you die, you, you're sort of like put to sleep. And although it may be many, 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 many years until the Lord returns, sort of like a good night's rest, you go to sleep and you wake up as though no time has passed. Some people think that's what happens. Uh, the Bible does not seem to bear the idea of soul sleep. So I would tell you, you remain conscious. Here's where we get that from Scripture. Let me give you one here. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 12 in verse 7. It says, The dust, again your body, returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. In other words, your body and soul, when you die, are separated. The spirit goes to heaven or hell, and the body goes to the earth. Now, do you remember the story Jesus tells of a rich man and Lazarus? They both die, and they immediately go to their reward or punishment. And they are conscious and aware of their state immediately. Or what about the criminal on the cross to whom Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or I think about Paul's words. I desire, he says, to depart and be with Christ. Not go to sleep, but be with Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be away from the body, dead, and at home with the Lord. So repeatedly we get this very clear pattern or principle that we are immediately with God. You're not sleeping. 
So you need to know your brothers and sisters, your mamas, your daddies, your kids, whomever have passed on, they are conscious, they are awake, and they are celebrating a life that we cannot yet imagine. That's good news. Now, there's a phrase, fallen asleep, that is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and other places, which is simply a euphemism or a figure of speech to describe what the body is doing. It looks like it is sleeping. If you've ever been to a funeral and the body is laid there, the body looks asleep. It's simply a euphemism for death. But as we have already said for the past few weeks, at Jesus' second coming, the spirit that is with God in heaven and the body that is dead will be reunited, the body will be transformed, and we will be with the Lord forever. But there's no point where you are unconscious or unaware of what is going on. Question number three. Do we become angels or get wings when we go to heaven? Now, I'm not going to ask if you've ever asked the question, But will you raise your hand if you've ever heard one of these questions or a type of this question ever stated? Any of you ever? So at a funeral, oh, Bobby's got his wings. Oh, God has another angel. This is a very popular but not correct view. In fact, I will tell you the scriptures do not say that you become an angel or you get wings. I had someone after first service come up to me and say, I'm mad at you. I was counting on my wings. All right, bells do not give you wings, whatever else. You don't get wings, okay? You say, Josh, where do you get that from? You're going to have to prove it to me. All right, let me give you a few passages. Why? Angels and humans are distinct, different, separate entities. Here we go. Psalm 8.5 says, You, God, have made them, humans, a little lower. Highlight this for me, will you? A little lower than the angels and crowned humans with glory and honor, distinct and separate. Or what about 1 Corinthians 6.3? Paul says, Do you not know? That we, Christians, will judge angels. By the way, now we got to get into that someday. That's like, whoa, 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 time out, Digsy. What are we talking about here? I don't have time to explain it right now. But what I want you to see is separate and distinct. You don't become an angel. You have a role in ruling and reigning with Christ in the heavens and earth to come. What? Yes, it's going to be great. Here's the third one. This shouldn't surprise us, by the way, the distinction. Genesis 1.25, all creation was made after each one's kind. God made the wild animals according to their kind. The livestock according to their kind. And all the creatures that moved along the ground according to their kind. After all, you are after the human kind and that does not change simply because you die. Now, while I don't have time to go into it today, let me give you a little teaser. Did you know the Bible says there are at least three different kinds of angels? Actually, there's a fourth one called Archangel. Won't even talk about that. But there are three. You want a little teaser? Here you go. There are three types. The first type is what we would call the messenger angel. This would be like the angel Gabriel who brought the message of Jesus' birth to Mary, a messenger. By the way, in Scripture, if you read the descriptions, there are no wings involved when it comes to messenger angels. They look human. They're now scary because people freak out like, what are you doing here? but they don't have wings. There's a second kind that is referenced in Isaiah chapter 6, and these are called seraphim. Everyone say seraphim. Seraphim are the worshiping angels. These are ones that have six wings, two to fly, two to cover their face, and two to cover their feet. By the way, this picture is inaccurate because they also are said to have eyes covering all over them. Mm -hmm. All right, now there's a third kind. Don't put it up yet, but the third kind 
is called cherubim. Now, when you think of cherubim, most of us think of Cupid. A cute little fat baby with wings and maybe a bow and arrow. Anyone else think of that when you think of a cherubim? A cherubim, that, now by the way, that is from medieval art, not from the Bible. You want to know what the Bible describes cherubim as? Ezekiel describes them this way. Four-headed beings with the head of a man, lion, eagle, and ox. Four wings, and if you could see it, hooves for feet. Is it any wonder when angels appear to humans, people get a little weirded out? So, bad news, you don't get wings. Good news, God does not turn you into one of these things. Amen? All right, let's move on. Question number four. Will our heavenly bodies be recognizable? The answer, according to Jesus. Go ahead, question number four. Will our heavenly bodies be recognizable? The answer is yes. That's good news. Two passages. One from Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. He says that we will appear in heaven and we will have this wonderful meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, question. How do we know it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're recognizable. Or what about this from Revelation chapter 7 where we're told it's not just some people who are gathered together, but people from every nation, tribe, people, and language will be gathered. Question, how do we know these are people from different parts of the world with different dialects unless we retain some of our earthly ethnicity and dialect or language? In other words, heaven does not erase the things that make you, you. I love what author and theologian Thomas Oden says. He says, The glorified body is not a different body, but a different form of the same body. Which means when you appear in heaven, you're not going to have to look around and say, Well, you, floating spirit, are you my mommy? Uh, You, are you my daddy? No, 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 no. You will see your loved ones, and you will recognize them. And you'll run to them and you will embrace and you'll hug and you'll laugh and you'll dance. And then you'll push them away and go, wow, you got an upgrade. I see you, but you look good. So yes, you'll be recognizable in heaven. Question number five, what age will I be in heaven? Okay, now this one's hard. Are you guys ready? Let's just go in deep. By the way, question, any of you ever wonder how old will you be or look in heaven? Yeah, so like if you die young, will you be young? If you die old, will you be old? I mean, how does this work? Short answer is, we don't know. We just don't know. Bible doesn't answer the question, but a lot of theologians have tried to answer it through through the history. Okay, here's a few of them. The medieval people would say, we will appear at the same age as Christ when he was resurrected because Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection, the first one to be raised, and so we will be like him. How old was Jesus approximately? How old was Jesus when he was raised from the dead? Yeah, 33. So a lot of people say, well, we'll be 33. Will we? I don't know. Now, some of the medieval authors and luminaries, such as Peter Lombard, Thomas Aquinas, and others, suggest that since heaven is without sin or the curse of decay and death, we all would be resurrected at the age when we were at our strongest, such as our 20s or our 30s. Do we know that for sure? No. It's a good idea. I kind of like it. What about this, though? This has a deeper question under it, 
And I want you to think deeply with me because this is a pastoral care question. Do you know what that means when I say pastoral care? It means that you care for people who are going through difficult times. That's what this question actually is hinting at. Because here's what's under this. What about my child who died at a young age? What about my little one? What about that baby I never got to meet? How old? Well, I recognize him. What's the deal there? I want to give you a little bit of hope. First off, if you've lost a child at a young age, I'm so, so sorry. And we're going to deal with that a little bit more here in a moment. But I need you to hear me now. There's some beautiful... Hints in scripture, I want to speak to you if you are a parent or a grandparent or friend who's lost a little one. Isaiah chapter 11 and 65 talk about the future heaven and earth. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9 in particular, I want you to see this. The cow in the new heaven and earth, the cow will feed with the bear, meaning enemies will be together. Their young will lie down together. And the lion that likes to eat meat on earth will actually eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Now, this is not a question on parenting skills. This is simply to say, in heaven, the things that were so dangerous on earth will no longer be enemies because the king of kings will perfectly rule over all and brokenness will not reign. Is that good news to anyone? Oh, yeah. But did you notice the infant and the young child? If this passage is referring to the future heaven and earth, like Isaiah 65, a parallel passage seems to be, then there seems to be indication that those who did not have the privilege of growing up in this world will in the next. So your child or grandchild who died, their spirit went to be with the Lord, their body is in the ground, but at the second coming, when body and soul are reunited, glorified, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if it wouldn't be just like our God to give back to grieving parents what the world took from them and allow these little ones to grow up in a perfect world which would be enviable for any child and for parents to be able to watch them grow in the new perfect heaven and earth. While we don't know that to be true, it would be just like our God to give us back what we lost. Amen. So, question number six, what are we going to do in heaven? Have you ever wondered this? Is it fluffy clouds and boredom? Or is it worse? Is it going to be like this, a big church service forever and ever? Oh, please be quiet, Josh. You want some good news? Yes, it's going to be exactly like this. You are so welcome. No, no, not at all. We will worship the Lord. In fact, it will be the most splendid thing you've ever done. The most joy you have here on earth doesn't touch what you'll enjoy in heaven when worshiping the King of Kings in person. But that's not all we'll do. Let me give you three additional things we'll do. Number one, we will eat. How many of you like to eat? Anyone? How many of you are ready for me to be done so you can go eat? Yeah, some honest people here. Thank you. In heaven, you'll get to eat. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew. He says, many will come from east and the west and will take their places. Notice this. At the feast. Yes. And I'm convinced in a perfect place, calories will make you lose weight, not gain them. Oh, yeah. We'll eat. Number two, though, we will work. Yeah, let's talk about this for a minute. See, one of the questions that comes up, people say, well, how could there be any work in heaven? Remember, we're going to have a glorified earth, not just some clouds in the sky. So, so maybe a better question is to think through, 
what this world, this place will be like. Let me give you a couple things. How did God start all things before sin began? Was there work before sin, church? Was there work before death? Was there work before clothing? That has nothing to do with anything. Just curious, okay? But there was work, wasn't there? In the beginning, when everything was perfect, God gave the first man two jobs. He said, you will take care of the animals, name them, tend the garden. And number two, he says, you will be rulers over creation. Wow. And then he gives Adam a bride, a beautiful babe, to call his own and a hunky man for her to say yeah to. And they became husband and wife working together for the purposes of God, cultivating creation. What happened is before sin, it wasn't that there was no work. It's just there was no sin. So now in the new heavens and the new earth, it makes sense that there would be work again. And let me give you evidence. Jesus tells a parable about a master who has three servants and he gives them different talents. One, two, and five talents. Give me a hand if you know what parable I'm talking about. Any of you recognize this one? Jesus says that the master gives them talents, says, go to work, invest, work, build. He goes away. He comes back at the end of their work time. This is a parallel or a way of understanding God empowering us to do work, and he will come back at the end of our lives, and we will have to give a response for how we lived. Now, when he comes back, he says, bad job to the one talent guy who just frittered things away. He says, you're going to go out into outer darkness... Weeping, gnashing of teeth. What does that refer to, O scholars of the word? Hell. Yeah, this this is judgment time language. But to those who were good and faithful, look at these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. By the way, how many of us want Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Oh, man, yeah. But he says this. Notice the tenses. Jesus says, the master will say, you, servants, have been faithful with a few things. So in your life, you have been. Notice now, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now think with me. If in a broken world marred by sin, what have we discovered, by the way? What kind of industries have we come up with in a broken world? Let's just look at a few of these. So we have mathematics, Architecture, art, engineering, chemistry, painting, graphic design, publishing, media, music, theater, sports, TikTok creators. Okay, I'm not sure that's from God, but we have come up with all sorts of things, haven't we? Imagine the industries in a, not just a world, but a universe that no longer has the taint of sin on it. By the way, I hope this is true because if it's just all the jobs that are currently on earth, your preacher's in trouble because I won't have a job in heaven. You understand? I don't get a job. My job is to tell you about Jesus. I'm not going to have a job there. It's like, tell me about Jesus. Why don't you just go talk to him? He's right there. So will there be work? Yes, absolutely. But it will not be the soul-crushing work that you find yourselves today. It will be the pre-fall work where, what did he do? Maybe he went and he sang to the trees and out popped fruit. I don't know. But it will be enjoyable and life-sustaining, not life-crushing. Third thing that you'll see in heaven, we've got eating, working, and yes, play. Who likes to play? Can I see some hands? Yeah. Amen. Let me show you a passage here. Actually, before we do that, can I be honest As an adult, the real question most adults are asking is not, will I get to go outside and play with my buddies? 
In fact, I had a guy this week say, now Diggs, I don't care about play. I have one specific question. What I really want to know is will there be sports in heaven? Bum, 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 right? Will there be baseball? Will there be football? Will there be rhythmic gymnastics? Yes, yes, not a chance. Okay, so why? Let's talk about this. Scripture says this about play. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. So if play in general is in the new heaven and earth, then why not sports? Randy Alcorn, he is an author, wrote a great book. By the way, side note, if you want a deep dive on so much more, read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. Much of what we're talking about today is because of his scholarship. What I want you to hear, though, is he had a conversation with a preacher who was convinced there would be no sports in heaven. And Randy said, why not? The preacher said, sports. They bring out the worst in people and cause people to sin. And Randy goes, that's a crock. He said, yeah, well, I've seen some people behave badly with sports, but I've also seen the best in people come out. When they're pushing themselves and growing and striving. How many of you have seen people push themselves and grow because of sports? Anyone in here? So then the preacher said, okay, fine, fine, fine. The reason there cannot be sports in heaven is not because of sin, but because you can't lose in heaven or it wouldn't be heaven. And Randy asked a very obvious question. Who says? Is heaven all about you getting your way all the time? Is heaven about everyone getting a participation trophy? That may be America. That ain't heaven. In fact, consider this. Randy made the point. He said, one of the most wonderful things that happens is when we learn, we, when we lose, we learn and we grow. By the way, is it a bad thing to lose? Well, if it is family, then we've been lying to our kids when we tell them it's not a bad thing if you lose. It's more important how you play the game. And think about this. Isn't it true? Parents, when you teach your child a new skill or the way to do something and they practice and they practice and they practice and then they beat you in that thing, how do you feel? I know, dads, at first you're like, there's a party that goes, yeah, at a boy, at a girl. I need to address something. Some of you say, yeah, 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 but, but won't we be perfect in heaven? How's there any growth? Do you remember Adam and Eve were without sin, but they were not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, were they? In fact, Adam had to name the animals, so he was growing in something. He got to meet his wife, so he didn't know her beforehand. In other words, before sin, there was still growth. And often we learn the most and become more like God in the moments we fail and have to work more than when everything comes easy. So, that's my two cents. Feel free to disagree, but you don't get to play with us in heaven. Okay. (laughs) Question number seven and eight, these actually go together, but they are two radically separate sounding questions, but they are two sides of one coin. Here are the questions. Number seven is, first, if all people must accept Jesus to be saved then how can unborn babies or infants go to heaven? By the way, our our Catholic friends believe that a child must be baptized or sprinkled as an infant. Why? Because if they die, they will not go to heaven, right? So this is a very serious question. And the second part is, so what happens to the person who never hears about Jesus? First, again, to parents, if you've lost children, we hurt for you and we hurt with you. And so we want to be very thoughtful about what we now say. But those 
little ones. I believe there's hope for and peace for every parent who's lost a child. There are two passages I want us to look at. Now, you're going to have to think for a minute. I know, sorry, but we've got to do it. John 9 and Romans 1, two passages tell us the answer to both of these questions. I'll tell you the punchline. I believe, based on the passages we're about to look at, that unborn children, of which over 60 million have been aborted in our nation since 1973, and little children are with our Lord and Savior. Let me tell you why. John chapter 9, look at what Jesus says. When asked if the religious leaders were blind, spiritually unable to see, Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. In other words, if you can't see, God's not going to judge you for not being able to see. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, God will not judge someone who does not have the capacity to see, to understand. So, let's be very clear. Children, there's a difference between understanding a consequence and understanding the sin behind the consequence. Here's what I mean. You tell your child, don't do this thing or I will spank your hand. Little kid goes over and thinks, I don't think they'll do it. Does that thing, mama, whack. Mm. Consequence, I understand I won't do that so I don't get hit. That's different than the child understanding doing that is sinful, it breaks my mama's heart, and it offends a perfect God. Little children do not understand that yet. But there does come a point when we do understand those things. So Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul answering the question, what happens to those who do not hear the name of Jesus Christ? Are they going to be judged? Are they not blind? And Paul gives chilling, chilling clarity on this. This is what Paul says. God's invisible qualities, this is talking about nature, the evidence of a creator, have been clearly, what's that word, church? Seen. Oh, so so we can see it. We're not blind. There is evidence. So that people are without excuse. So in the same way that an unborn or a young child who does not understand, does not yet have the capacity to understand sin from righteousness, only consequences, those who are older, we understand the oughtness of the world. I may not be able to tell you why something is this way, but I understand from the evidence around me and the conscience within me, there's a way to live, and I haven't lived that way. So will God judge those little ones? No, I believe they are with him. Will God judge those who understand there is a right and a wrong way, even if they don't hear the name of Jesus? According to Scripture, the answer is yes. Hear me now, friends. This is why we must care enough for our friends to tell them about Jesus. Explain why they sense things are a certain way and the evidence around them. Because they will meet their maker and it will not go well. We must share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now we could get into the question of people in other places and other times and all this. The response for you and me is to share what we have been given. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go. Question, where are we? Goodness, question number nine. All right, here's a hard one. Are you ready? Do confessing Christians who commit suicide go to hell? 
Let me see some hands. How many of you have ever heard this before, that if you commit suicide, you'll go to hell? Anyone? Okay. Is suicide the unpardonable sin? No. The unpardonable sin in Scripture is blaspheming the Scripture or the Holy Spirit, basically telling God, I don't want you, I don't need you, leave me alone. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin, and if we tell the convictor of sin to bug off, there is no one to convict us of sin to then cause us to repent. Does that make sense? So what about suicide? Now, again, some other, uh, other groups will say that if you commit suicide, that is unpardonable because you cannot repent or do penance after committing the act. I need to say this very clearly before I give you the answer. The scripture is uniform in saying that suicide is self-murder. And murder is incredibly serious. God has made you. God owns you. And if you've given your life to Jesus, you've acknowledged his ownership. We have no right to snuff out the life that God, not you, not me, but that God owns. And please hear me. If you are in a dark place this morning and you are contemplating suicide, I would tell you, please don't. Please don't. You may feel like things will never get better, that things will never get brighter. You need to understand, your feelings do not determine reality. Suicide is a permanent solution to what will be a temporary problem. Now, I know if you're in the middle of depression and despair, you say, I've been here for weeks, months, or years. How can you say it's temporary? In the scheme of things, it is temporary. And you just need to know, friends, if you take your life, you are harming and scarring the people you love most in ways that they will never fully recover. Have you read before of a suicide bomber blowing himself or herself up in a crowded place? Isn't it true that those closest to the blast are hurt the most? Now, I'll be clear. This is not some out-there theory for your preacher. I have personally held the hands of spouses and parents and children on the day that they found the body of their loved one. So before we answer the question, you just need to hear, in the name of Jesus Christ, don't do it. It's not worth it. And our Savior can restore So what is the answer? I'll answer it with a question. Does the last decision of your life determine every other decision from your life? So let's say you're going to lunch today after church. You're hungry, so you're moving quick. I know we don't speed because we love Jesus. But you're just moving right up to the very edge of the speed limit. Right? Someone, because they too are hungry, cut you off in traffic. And as they go by, they decide to do a one-finger wave. You know, being real friendly-like. You're ticked off, so you utter a few choice words or you gesture back. You lose control, you're gone. Quick question. The last moments of your life were sinful. Anger, language, blasphemy, cursing, whatever. Does that last moment undermine your relationship with Jesus Christ? Does that take power away from his saving grace? What I would tell you is cautiously, no. No. God knows your heart, the trajectory of your life, and if you genuinely follow, love, and trust him, that is not license to harm yourself. That should actually draw you to love him more and say, if he loves me that much, I can trust that he's with me even in these moments. So, 
Number nine. Let me hit one more. I don't know that we'll be able to get to the last two, but let's see here. Number ten. Everybody say, number ten. All right, we're in the countdown here. Why doesn't God let everyone into heaven? So, if you listen to almost any secular interview with a secular host and a religious person, they'll say, so why do you Christians think that only God will let you into heaven? Does he just want to keep everyone out from this beautiful cosmic fun factory? Now, here's the problem with the question, will only Christians get to go to heaven? They never ask, why would anyone want to go to heaven or what is heaven? Let's define heaven. Many of us have the wrong notion that heaven is a perpetual, self-satisfying pleasure factory designed around my personal whims, wants, and desires, but that is not the picture from Scripture. Is heaven amazing? Yeah. But it's not amazing because I eat cotton candy and ride roller coasters all my life, like Pleasure Island in Pinocchio. Any of you get that old reference? That's yeah, only okay. Scripture says that heaven, at its fundamental place, is a place with God. It's not about your pleasure, it's about His presence. So what does it mean to fully and always be in the presence of God? That's the real question. To be in the presence of God means to want the heart of God and the things of God. That means to be in the presence of God, gossip is no longer on the table. Self-exaltation is no longer on the table because only He is to be exalted. Pride is no longer an option. Lust is no longer an option. Greed is no longer an option. Lying is no longer an option. To be in the presence of God means that certain things that I long for, want in this life will no longer be an option. Let me put it this way. Do not raise your hands on this question. Well, I'll laugh at you if you do, so don't. Here we go. Here's the question, though. Have you ever been tempted to sin sexually in the same room where your mother is? No. Just don't even... Okay. Of course not. Why? Because mama's there. Now imagine being in a place where God is forever and ever, and the temptation or the option is no longer on the table. The question is not, why won't God let people into heaven? The question is, what must God do to make us the kind of people prepared for heaven? Do you see the difference? I love what author uh, Dallas Willard says. This is such a fantastic statement. He says this. God will let everybody into heaven. Put this up. God will put, will allow everybody into heaven who can possibly stand it. In other words, God is the quintessential gentleman. If you say, I want to be with you forever and I want your ways forever, he'll say, you come on, I got a place for you. But if you say, you know, I really would rather do these other things than hang out with you, they'll say, okay. It's not that God holds people out. It's that people do not want to come in. Do you remember Jesus' words? I stand at the door and what? I knock. He's the pursuing God. We are a rejecting people. So God will let anyone in who wants to be in. Let me give you one last question before we call it a morning. Number 11, do my loved ones see me from heaven? We have another question we won't get to today, but let's end on this one. Do my loved ones see me from heaven? Okay, you ready? Is this a big deal to the people who have lost children or parents or loved ones before their, in our minds before their time? Yeah. Is this important to the daughter who wants 
her daddy to see her walk her down the aisle? Yeah. Let me tell you what Scripture seems to say. It seems that Scripture does say yes. Here's why. Scripture, specifically the book of Revelation, indicates that there may be, to some degree, knowledge of what's going on earth. For example, martyrs in heaven, those who have died, know God has not yet brought judgment on their persecutors in Revelation 6. And when Babylon is brought down, Babylon is the symbol for all evil, when Babylon is brought down, an angel points to events happening on earth and says to the people in heaven, rejoice over her, O heaven, rejoice over Babylon. Why? He says, rejoice saints, so he's talking to the saints, and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she, Babylon, treated you. The angel specifically addresses the saints in heaven about events on earth, letting saints in heaven know of things going on. Now, does this mean your loved ones know everything happening? I don't know. And some of us go, how could they know more details because there's so much sadness on earth? And again, the answer is, I don't know. But there are passages that seem to indicate that for those who long for their parents, children, and friends to witness key moments in their lives, our good God gives them hints or pictures or insights into what is happening. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. In chapter 11, listing all the saints who came before, there's now this statement that we are now surrounded. Does that mean figuratively that they've come before or that they see us in some way again? There seems to be indication that, yes, they can see what's going on in some ways. And what they're doing is they are cheering you on, saying, it's worth it. You keep running. Jesus is worth it. Life is hard, but it is worth it. Continue, be faithful to the end for the applause of heaven. The people of God are celebrating what Christ has done and is doing in you. And we will celebrate when you get to heaven. We've had a lot of questions this morning. One that we don't get to today is where are, when are people judged? And that's an important question. But I want to answer one and the most important question today of everything we've said. Some of these have been real hard questions. Some are more simple. But none of these questions matter. Hear me now. Wake up for two seconds. None of these questions matter if this one question is not answered in your life. And here it is. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? It doesn't matter what heaven's like if you aren't in relationship with Jesus. You say, well, how do I trust him? It's very simple. Two things. Number one, you quit being your own God and confess you've made a royal mess of things and you need a savior. And number two, you ask Jesus to be that savior. You put him on in baptism. You go down in the water and in a way I can't explain, you meet him, he meets you, he seals you with the presence of his Holy Spirit, guaranteeing his presence in you and your presence with him for eternity. Have you trusted Jesus?